North Korea, occupying over 120,000 square kilometers of Eastern Asia. The communist dictatorship is one of the most secretive countries in the world. My name's Ari Kagan, and on this episode of Things You Don't Need to Know, we're traveling deep into the belly of the beast and exploring what the country is actually like. If I was the Discovery Channel, or any other martyr of truth and information on television, that is exactly how I would start my documentary about traveling to North Korea. But I'm not. I'm just some dude with a microphone. Which is why when I present the idea of traveling to North Korea, I prefer to go into it with an open mind. It's not an evil puppet state with weapons of mass destruction. It's a culturally rich nation which has been family owned and operated for over 70 years. The people love their chancellor. Just listen to how they cheered at his last speech. But then again, what's not to love about someone who's so perfect, he doesn't have to defecate. North Korea is also socialist, which means they have free health care. And when you pair that with all the tourist attractions, such as the Botanical Gardens, the Changwai Mountains, the Grand Monument, the Central Zoo, which, might I add, features a magnificent tiger facade on its front doors, the Hermit Kingdom is starting to sound like a pretty sweet place. Unfortunately, as of September 2017, U.S. citizens are no longer permitted to visit North Korea without special validation from the Department of State. If you're not from America and you want to visit North Korea, it's much easier. You simply go to certain companies that offer North Korean tours and book the trip like you'd book any other vacation. That being said, I only have an American passport, and although I have been desperately trying to acquire one through marriage, my luck so far suggests that won't happen anytime soon. So, due to these extenuating circumstances, we are going to have to learn about North Korea through proxy. So, please welcome one-time visitor of the DPRK, Tara Palmieri. My name is Tara Palmieri. I was the White House correspondent for ABC News. During this time, she went on a rather interesting trip. When I was a White House correspondent, um, I covered President Trump's summit, that historic summit in Singapore with Kim Jong-un. President Trump was the first to arrive. Then Kim Jong-un emerged, walking faster to catch up. It was a big, you know, dog and pony show. I asked him, I said, would you like me to come across the line? He said, I would be honored to do that. I would be honored. Now, I didn't know really what he was going to say. Not of anything of substance. Basically, it was a blank paper with a bunch of broad commitments and nothing filled in, right? So it was just sort of the ceremonial thing where the president of the United States for the first time is sitting down with this like 35-year-old dictator, Kim Jong-un, from a third world country. And it was just like, no one knew what to think about it. The first sitting American president to set foot on North Korean soil. Trump's all about the show. And, you know, we all felt a bit snookered by the thing. Stepping across that line was a great honor. A lot of progress has been made. A lot of friendships have been made, and this has been in particular a great friendship. And then, you know, a few weeks later, in July, it came time to actually fill in the details of the broad stroke agreements. And so Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went on a secret mission to North Korea. 
I mean, it couldn't be announced. We knew as journalists, he would only take five outlets, a print photographer, a wire, as in like the AP, Reuters, like, you know, I think at that point he took Bloomberg, a major newspaper, the New York Times, a producer from a cable news network, Fox News, and one correspondent from a network, ABC. And I just so happened to be that correspondent who got to go mainly because it was over the July 4th weekend <laughs> and uh, you know anyone who would have been able to pull seniority and go to North Korea had probably already made some plans for July 4th and I didn't um, <laughs> so I, I got to go to North Korea it was crazy what was the first step in actually being able to go it was interesting because before we went to North Korea, we had to get our um, new State Department issued passports that were specifically for North Korea. They said on them, this is for use for the PRK, and they had an expiration date. We never got stamped. We never got stamped coming in or leaving. This is not all that uncommon. North Korea doesn't actually stamp anyone's passports. They instead issue you a travel card, which acts as your temporary visa. We got in a plane that is one of our military planes. It looks just like Air Force One, except it's not called Air Force One because the president's not in it, right? Air Force One is a Boeing VC-25, otherwise known as a military version of the 747. And Air Force One's not actually the name of the plane. It's just the moniker for whatever plane the president's currently in. Like, this was a slapdash kind of mission to... North Korea. It didn't feel like there was a lot of preparation. And mainly they couldn't prepare because we don't have anyone on the ground there in North Korea. You know what I mean? Like you're bringing a whole team of diplomats from the State Department and like they don't even know how they're going to have internet. I remember before I left, my uh, team gave me $10,000 in like cash. They gave me a burner laptop and a burner cell phone and said, just leave it there. Don't even take it back. My laptop that I actually use, they said, leave it in the plane in a box that somehow kind of stops any Wi-Fi transmissions or anything like that from picking up the information inside of our uh, Disney laptops. So, you know, we we were fully prepared for the fact that we were on enemy territory, right? And we didn't know where we were sleeping. We didn't know where we were sleeping, not even until we landed that night. I'm with the Secretary of State of the United States, and we're asking the press secretary, where are we sleeping tonight? And she said, I don't know yet. We'll see. So the Secretary of State and his merry little band of reporters all pile into the world's largest bald eagle and make the nearly 11,000-mile trek to the Hermit Kingdom. It was just like walking into a, a movie set. It was creepy from the second we even like descended, you know, on the tarmac at the pl- at the <laughs> the airport. Um, they had scarecrows on the ground lining the runway, but like instead of having scary faces, they had smiley face emoji faces. There were no people in the airport. There were no people on the road. You're on a main avenue, a main street, like maybe Park Avenue, right? There's no cars on the road. But there are people walking, and not one of them like looks towards you as the procession is going by. You know, like a fleet of cars on an empty road. Could you imagine? Just no one even looking at the spectacle. Yeah. What kind of cars did they put you in? Like these 1980s Dodge Rams. Another car they really seem to love is the Mercedes-Benz 600, which is this completely over-the-top small limousine driven by nearly every dictator since the 70s. So when we got in the car with them, um, the diplomats from North Korea, they're like, no fake news in here, right? Ha 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 Like, they know all the jokes from in the U.S., right? Although I doubt that their uh, fellow uh, comrades that aren't in government know much about what's going on in the U.S., As they get closer to the nation's capital of Pyongyang, they start seeing more and more out-of-place buildings. There's just, like, really impressive architecture in Pyongyang. I don't know if you've ever seen 
It's super futuristic. It's really weird. Like there's this 1,000 foot skyscraper in the shape of a pyramid. It, it looks, you know, like a triangle shape. That massive structure is the Ryugyong Hotel, a glass-clad shell of a building that towers a thousand feet over the surrounding city. Construction started in 1987 after it was announced South Korea was to host the 1988 Olympic Games. The nation's leader at the time, Kim Il-sung, saw the South evolving and entering the modern world at a rapid rate and was not to be outdone. In the late 80s, North Korea was a sort of puppet state for the Soviet Union and China, so naturally they had the funding to create such grand structures. It was scheduled to open with the 1989 World Festival of Youth and Students, which was to be hosted in Pyongyang. The celebration, which still is the largest international event in North Korea's history, came and went with the Ryugyong still unfinished. In the early 90s with the fall of the USSR, North Korea lost nearly all of its funding and along with it the 2% of their annual GDP being spent on construction of this single building. It sat as a concrete shell through the famine of the 90s and the Kim Jong-il era, almost coming to symbolize the country's greatest failures. However, in 2008, an Egyptian telecommunications company was contracted to finish construction, and it looks quite fancy with its glass facade, but as of today, the hotel sits completely empty and inside lacks any semblance of a habitable structure. Three generations of the Kim family have worked on this massive hotel, and much like my basement, it remains unfinished. The buildings closest to the main avenues are in perfect shape, perfect condition, right? But if you like actually make uh, if you turn or you look a little further, the next row of buildings behind them on those streets, completely like in shambles, you know, like just, just rickety and in shambles. Um, the fountains, some of the fountains in the city, they didn't have water coming out of them. They don't even use electricity on some nights. If you look at a, a supermarket, if you look through the windows, the first row facing the window, stacked with, with goods, right? Like completely filled. You walk one step deeper into the supermarket, there's nothing there. When we return, we'll hear about everything from where they stayed to what they ate or didn't eat. We'll be right back. After arriving at the airport with emoji-faced scarecrows lining the runway and traveling down streets of people too terrified to look at the motorcade as it went by, they finally arrived at one of the royal guest houses next to the Ryansung Resistance, residence number 55, or as the locals know it, the central luxury mansion. If you go on Google Earth, you can see someone's labeled one of the neighboring buildings uh, Target, like the department store. It's very clever if you think about it. What was the general vibe of the building you stayed at? It had a sort of formality. It was regal. It had like, you know, curtains, like very like drapery that was kind of like with gold threading. Um, you know, it had like almost like Baroque style furniture. It was it was meant to connotate like a sense of, um, it was trying to prove itself as an important space. There were lots of murals. None of the paintings had people's faces on them, um, but they were massive moral, uh, murals, like floor to ceiling. Um, and I asked, you know, what is this mural of? When we walked right in, there are chandeliers, you know, beautiful carpets. And I said, oh, that's the place where uh, Kim Jong-un descended from. Like, he wasn't birthed like a regular person, apparently. I'm going to go on a little tangent here to talk about some of the things that people are told about the Supreme Leader. More specifically, Kim Jong-il, who's Kim Jong-un's father. There are a lot of legends about him, and some of them are just downright ridiculous. Like, there's this one about how he invented the hamburger, which obviously is just completely false. But if you needed any proof, White Castle, America's oldest burger chain, was founded in 1921. Kim Jong-il would not be born for another 20 years. Here's another one. He once played a round of golf and got 38 under par. 
On an 18-hole course, par is 72, which means he scored a 34. Not only the best score ever recorded by a mile, but also it means he would have had to score no worse than a birdie on 13 out of 18 holes, which is the golf way of saying one less than par, and a hole-in-one on the remaining five. How about a rapid-fire round? Okay, let's go. He doesn't have to defecate. He was born on top of a sacred mountaintop, and a new star was created that turned winter into spring. He's a fashion icon whose signature gray military styling is celebrated by designers the world over. And finally, greatness is hereditary. According to the state media, Kim Jong-un is just as amazing as his father, including but not limited to being a world-class musical composer who is celebrated around the world. So at the time when we had, when we were on our way there, there was some reporting that Pompeo brought with him a uh, a signed CD of Rocket Man from Trump to uh, Kim Jong Un as a way to like you know lighten the tensions. Back in 2000, when Madeleine Albright visited North Korea, she actually brought with her a gift of a signed Michael Jordan basketball. That same basketball, and this is not a joke, sits in their national gallery. You know he loves American culture. Uh, I remember. Actually, after I left, I, I broke the story that he asked as part of the agreement that there would be a cultural exchange where we would send our um, best basketball players to North Korea in exchange for denuclearization. It just shows you like you're dealing with like a 35 year old bro. He's 37 now, but you know, I think he was 34 at the time, which is crazy because I'm 33 and I'm like, I could never run a country and I won't be a dictator, but you know, this guy. Part of being a dictator is showing hospitality to your guests. For example, giving them a tour of the city. Apparently it was a holiday that day uh, to the Supreme Leaders, meaning, you know, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung. That's, you know, the father of Kim Jong-un and the grandfather, the original great leaders. And so we went to this massive bronze statue of them, like massive. I've never seen anything like it before. Um, and there were like hundreds, thousands of people lined up in like perfect procession, lining up to these statues and bowing in front of the statues. I took videos of that too. And the weird thing is, is that like, you can even see in the videos, like I'm shooting like right in their faces. We're in the middle of the crowd. We're there are probably the few uh, white Americans there, right? And they're not even looking at us. They just walk right past us and don't even acknowledge us. Like they're programmed not to look. Of course, no good tour would be finished without a trip to the gift shop. Crazy, right? Um, yeah, there's a government gift shop. They have like all these artifacts and like, I bought a bunch of propaganda, um, Posters. I bought a painting, a bunch of paintings actually, one of where Kim Jong-un descended of and another one of a like a, a landscape. I spent a few hundred dollars on the oil paintings, but it felt like, you know what, when am I going to go back to North Korea again? And now every time people walk in my house, they're like, what's that? I'm like, oh, that's where Kim Jong-un descended from. And they're beautiful paintings, truly really beautiful paintings. After collecting some souvenirs, they sat down for a nice lunch. They had a four course banquet. This is for lunch, by the way. Croissant, baguette, rice, quajul, I don't know if I'm saying it right, sesame quajul, kimchi, we know that, uh, cold steamed chicken, rainbow trout, marinated coriander, roast salmon on iron plate, steamed hock with red sauce, parboiled oak mushroom, Korean cabbage, nutritious, they called it, boiled rice, fruits, chocolate cake, and some tea and ice cream. They brought out the most magnificent meals, right? Like this is a, a country where there's like extreme deprivation and famine and we're eating like kings in the, um, you know, in their dining room. Did Kim eat with you? 
No, I never got to seek him. So this was the whole thing. We were pro- we were supposed to stay there for two days. It was on the second day that we were supposed to see Kim Jong-un. We were supposed to go to his palace. We were on the grounds of the palace, but we weren't actually inside of his palace. You know, it's like you don't stay at the White House when you go to visit on a diplomatic mission. If all went well with his number two, Kim Jong-chol, you know, then we would um, move on to meet with Kim Jong-un. Because like, at the end of the day, he's all a power play. Like he didn't want to sit down with the Secretary of State. He didn't want to sit down with Trump's number two. He only wanted to sit down with Trump. I got a knock on the door. It was like a really loud knock. It was from one of the fellow reporters. He's like, hurry up, we're going. And I was like, okay. And I, I think I fell asleep. I don't know, I was tired. I don't really grab all my clothes or anything. So I think we're just going to Kim Jong-un's palace, you know, for the next meeting. But no, we were actually getting on buses to leave. We were being kicked out. They called. Pompeo, a gangster and a thug, and um, they told us to get out of the country. So I left my clothes there, and you know, some North Korean news anchor is probably wearing them right now. 28 hours is all they got in the Hermit Kingdom. They'd left as quickly as they'd arrived. Was there anything else that kind of stuck out as a memorable part of the trip? Here's one thing. All the women of a certain age, you know, maybe women in their 60s, they they have parasols in their hands and they wear the same clothes, the same kind of like chino chow- trouser, button down shirt. The women who are like in their 30s or 20s, like my age, they're all wearing pencil skirts with little heels and button down shirts. And they all walk in like almost a marching style together. You know, uh, civilian men wear a certain outfit, same with children. And, you know, it just seems that everybody was sort of like in their rank and uniform, like their clothing, even if they were civilians, their clothing was very much like denoting their age, their status, their class. What do you think life is like for the citizens? Um, I don't know because truly they didn't really give us any access to these people. I don't, I can't assume that they speak English, right? Even if I wanted to talk to them. Um, the diplomats that we had access to spoke English, but they're never gonna say anything out of turn, right? Especially in front of a bunch of journalists. My impression is that they're frightened. Do you think that they believe the stories about how the leaders don't defecate? I don't know. I mean, I, I can't imagine they believe that. But if that's all you know, maybe you do. I mean, look, they were all lining up to bow before these massive statues. I, I can't say if it's fear-induced or if it's true true belief in this, like, God. Any advice for someone wanting to travel to North Korea? Don't do it. There's, like, really, I, I wouldn't do it. You have zero diplomatic relationships with them. You have to go through Sweden. I mean, Pompeo wanted to make a call to Trump and he had to go, I believe he went to the British embassy to make a phone call. Like, don't do it. You're risking your life. Even being with the State Department, I was nervous. Listen, everybody wants to be like a gonzo journalist and like try to go out there and get the story. But I know one of my colleagues at the New York Times went for a run along the property and someone jumped out of like a bush trying to get him to go back onto the main grounds. North Korea is extremely secretive, and it's hard to tell if we'll ever get a look at what life for its citizens is actually like. The tragic death of Otto Warmbier, an American student who stole a propaganda poster and ended up in a North Korean jail, provides a glimpse into the darker sides of the dictatorship, and perhaps a more realistic look at the regime, away from its perfectly manicured streets and movie set-style grocery stores. To see people who don't, who can't even look at you, like they wouldn't even dare glance our way. They're programmed. I left feeling very thankful to be American, more so than I've ever felt in my life. With the arrival of the Biden administration in early 2021, North Korea has gone right back to displaying its ICBMs, therefore continuing the cycle of negotiating sanctions by threatening nuclear war. 
who knows, maybe things will change one day. Maybe, you know, Kim Jong-un will become so unpopular, he'll be overthrown. But the question is, is the person who overthrows him, will they want to join the rest of the world? Until then, thanks for listening. Things You Don't Need to Know is a Hyperobject and 3 Uncanny 4 production. The show is hosted and written by me, Ari Kagan, and produced by Harry Nelson and also me. Additional help from Shane McKeon and Nuna Sharafadine. Our executive producers are Adam McKay and Laura Mayer. The show is mixed by Nice Manners. If you like Things You Don't Need to Know, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you leave a review, it really helps us out, so it's much appreciated. Unfortunately, I don't have anything to offer this week because it was all confiscated by North Korean customs. All right, see you next week.